in the 19th century, you start seeing the effects of all this scientific and um, technological improvement. All of a sudden, there is a budding abundance of material goods, and economic growth is truly taking off by the second half of, of the 19th century, not just in England, uh, but more broadly. You're also seeing uh, a strong working class movement with unions and socialists and anarchists and communists emerging. They were using the ideas of classical economics, in particular the labor theory of value. And the idea that, that they focused on was this idea that all value comes from labor. Why is it then, if all value is produced by labor, why are the workers getting so little? Hello, and welcome to another installment of the New Work in Intellectual History podcast. We are produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews, and you can find out about all the Institute's activities, events, podcasts, digital archives, and so on at intellectualhistory.net. That's intellectualhistory.net. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Professors Friedrich Alberton Johnson and Karl Wienerlind. Apologise for anglophone pronunciations there. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. So Frederick is Associate Professor of History and of Conceptual and Historical Studies in Science at the University of Chicago, while Carl is Professor of History at Barnard College, Columbia University, and they are the authors of Scarcity, a History from the Origins of Capitalism to the Climate Crisis, published by Harvard University Press earlier this year. I found this quite a powerful book, quite a depressing or, you know, um, challenging book to, to to get through, you know, to sort of, well, you'll explain why it's a challenging book. So let's just jump in. Um, could we give a summary of what the book's about, the sort of standard uh, elevator pitch kind of thing, please? Sure, sure, happy. And thanks for th- thanks for having us, Robin. We're very delighted to have this conversation with you. So, so this book is about worldviews about how people have understood the relationship between economy and nature and it's really motivated by a kind of sense that the modern neoclassical version of uh, an understanding of nature and economy and its relationship uh, is grounded in a very particular way of looking at the world and um you know, this idea is 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 essentially um, that scarcity is ever present in our lives uh, and that we always want more and therefore constantly seeking to maximize the use of resources and to generate as much economic growth as possible. Now, this has been a very successful strategy to deal with a variety of political, social and economic problems. Uh, in the last 200 years, uh, and we've accomplished uh, great wonders in terms of economic growth. Uh, But the problem that we are now facing is, of course, a massive climate crisis, a biodiversity crisis uh, that is making continued economic growth more of a problem than a solution. So what we're trying to do in this book is to um, encourage the readers to think outside the neoclassical version of scarcity. And the way that we're trying to foster that kind of thinking is to go back 500 years in time 
and look at some 11 different ways in which one can conceive of the nature economy relationship. Uh, <clears throat> 11 different types of scarcity. Some of them are cornucopian in the same way that neoclassical economics is. The idea that you know the economy can grow infinitely and nature can grow infinitely. Uh, and some of them are what we call finitarian, which means that there are limits to the economy and there, there are limits to nature. Uh, and what we're hoping to do, quite, um, quite honestly, is to get um, historians, anthropologists, sociologists, economists to really think about what kind of worldview we are encouraging our students to embrace and what does that worldview say about things like sustainability, biodiversity, um, uh, 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 maintaining a climate that um, enables complex human societies to flourish in unison with a respect for nature and non-human beings? Mm. I can just, um, this is possibly, I don't want to derail our focus <laughs> at the beginning, but I'm, I'm interested in, the sort of intellectual history that the book is, probably, you know, what the sort of intellectual history you're doing in the book. Um, Frederick, maybe you could uh, pick up on that score. So it's a very broad, it's a, it's a history, sort of a conceptual history of scarcity. What does that involve? What is particularly potent? I want to come back to the idea of, you know, how this can contribute to a larger uh, public debate later, at sort of at the end, but just for the moment, um, the more technical side of it, what, what sort of intellectual history is this? Um, well, excellent question. And, and thanks for having me on here with Coral. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, well, methodologically, um, we are in the business of genealogy. Um, uh, that's really uh, the first priority of, of uh, the approach here. So to excavate um, the origins of the current worldview, of the current dominant worldview, neoclassical scarcity, to understand uh, the contingent reasons for its uh, ascendance, um, and to excavate prior competing uh, notions of scarcity. Um, uh, and we do so by um, uh, by um, uh, a kind of abbreviated, uh, yet still fairly comprehensive survey of of five hundred years of history through a, um, <laughs> a couple of key characters. Um, so each each um, uh, each type of scarcity is is uh, reconstructed through historical contextual analysis of two, three, four thinkers. Uh, for example, with the Enlightenment, with Enlightened Scarcity, we zero in on uh, Hume, Smith, and Godwin. Um, each of these constellations then will give us a fairly uh, rounded sense of the meaning of scarcity in, in that particular moment. Um, uh, but uh, there's also a second priority to to the method, which is not just genealogical, not just uh, uh, um, unsettling our sense of the present and our complacency about our, our own worldview, uh, but also looking in the spirit of Quentin Skinner at the past as a storehouse 
of uh, lost, uh, lost world um, that may help us understand better the present uh, and may even enable us to, to clear a space to, um, to um, construct uh, a new sense of the future. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and that uh, then uh, gets us to the question you didn't want to ask right now about, mm -hmm. about the presentist aim mm -hmm. of this book. Um, but I'll say just methodologically um, that we're also, uh, although it's an intellectual history, uh, it's an intellectual history approach that's constantly self-consciously uh, um, situated in in the Earth system, in in the history of the Earth system, um, so so uh, the the question of climate change comes up fairly regularly throughout, um, even when um, the actors themselves have very little sense of what's going on. Uh, can I ask? Um, it raises for me sort of an interesting question about um, the point of being an academic historian. Right. Um, do you think it's incumbent upon uh, people in your position to get involved, try and contribute to um, such important issues as climate change? Right. Is there a um, I don't know. It's, it's it's a move away from like the the type of intellectual history I was brought up in, educated in, which was rather antiquarian in history for its own sake and don't bring presentist concerns back into the past because of the danger that you will misrepresent the past and and anachronism was the the worst you know to be anachronistic was the worst thing you could be i wonder whether either of you have a you know a, a view of has the situation changed why maybe it was always you had some scholars who were involved and others who weren't in in wider politics but yeah is um do you see any dangers do you see any opportunities with a more politically engaged approach to academic intellectual history well, I mean, I think there are many different ways of doing and writing history and thinking about history. So I, I wouldn't say that our approach should be setting the standards or that there's anything more noble or or more useful with our approach. But um, when we started talking about writing this book together, we had both written um, books that looked at the formation of worldviews and mostly through a constellation of, of scientific thinking and economic thinking and how they interacted to provide powerful uh, frameworks within which capitalism emerged. Uh, I was more working on the 17th century and Frederick a bit more on the 18th century. Um, and what we realized is that this interaction between economic and scientific ideas have been really powerful throughout history, uh, but that at the moment there's a disconnect between scientific ideas and economic ideas and neoclassical economics, although at times it tries to grapple with climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, has not been particularly successful at that. And even though they play lip service to to these kind of concerns, if you look at the dominant um, big uh, journal publication, there's very little mention of these monumental problems that our civilization is now facing. Mm -hmm. So we um, thought that it would be useful to show historically uh, what kind of interaction might be 
problematic in terms of our interaction with the environment uh, and nature and, and you know climate systems, um, but also perhaps ways in which we can use ideas to actually conceive of <laughs> alternatives uh, in, in the future. How do you get them to listen? <laughs> how to, how would you get a neoclassical economist to pay attention? I think it's very interesting for like the listeners to this podcast. I assume will be people who. Um, might be interested in whether they could write a book along these lines, whether they could sort of uh, use their expertise to contribute to a larger conversation. Um, but that this is not the audience of this book, right? So intellectual historians, uh, intellectual historians uh, are people inter interested in digital history will be part of the audience, but you are trying to break open a rather sealed discipline, which I just don't talk I across mean, that's true, uh, but, but the, the, the problem here is also that the economist worldview has really uh taken the world by storm uh and it's it's been elevated to um a higher degree of epistemic certainty or or uh it's been uh it, it's been given a kind of uh status as uh common sense or or even truth um so that a lot of the students who are moving through Econ 101 across the globe are, are being told that the world is scarce and that the fundamental assumptions of insatiability, infinite substitutability and fungibility, that they are in some ways um, accurate representations of, uh, of the world. I, I think we're less hopeful about reaching um, economists in general, but we have been teaching this material to our undergraduate students, and we've been lecturing a lot to undergraduate students. And amongst them, there's this, you know, almost immediate intuitive recognition that what we're saying in this book makes perfect sense and that mm -hmm. we need alternative worldviews. We need to move beyond this entrenched idea that uh, economic growth is the solution to all of our problems. Uh, mm. And we need to start thinking more creatively about the interaction between nature and the economy. Brilliant. Let's go back, so apologies for my derailing. Let's go back to um, the two kind of uh, what sort of overarching or umbrella worldviews that you use, cornucopian and finitarian. Uh, Frederick, I wonder whether you could um, get us going with this. Um, can you sort of summarise those, like the essence of those two, why they were useful as uh, umbrella sort of categories? And then uh, something I'm interested in, you describe them as oppositional intellectual frameworks. So that's a quote from the, from the book, but I'm interested in how they sort of play out against each other. So, Sorry, big, big question. Two big questions, but yeah, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, thanks for that. Uh, so first of all, most importantly, um, these are analytical constructs of ours, um, but they are, uh, we hope, uh, rooted in careful, close reading of the thinkers we're engaging with. Um, we, we may be, we may be, uh, uh, we may be wrong on the details, but we hope we're right about the the bigger picture. So, uh, so briefly, cornucopian is a is a kind of family of 
thinkers and ideas associated with a dynamic sense of the world, a dynamic sense of uh, nature as a storehouse of resources uh, that's uh, inexhaustible uh, and therefore capable of sustaining an economy where desires uh, can be infinite as well. Um, and and um, now that that's very obviously foundational to neoclassical scarcity. And we might have started the book simply there in the 1870s um, uh, with the marginalist revolution and its aftermath. But but um, we are both early modern um, intellectual historians by training. And so our instincts, um, and I think they're, they're, they're right, um, uh, would be to go back to the 17th century, the 16th and 17th century uh, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, um, the um, the proper origin of cornucopianism. And here uh, we identify um, a series of radical interventions. Um, Sir, uh, uh, um, Francis Bacon, of course, um, and uh, Samuel Hartlib and his circle, uh, his European circle. Um, and uh, in the following generation, uh, Barbon and Mandeville. Um, so, uh, so, so there are, in other words, um, there is a 17th century moment of cornucopianism um, that's then followed by other iterations with a similar flavor. Um, um, uh, um, on the other hand, Finitarianism is a family of ideas that identify the world as fundamentally stable, nature as finite, uh, and therefore suggests that desires, lest they unsettle society and create chaos, desires must be finite as well. Um, so that traditional and um, to some degree conservative worldview, um, we think is, is prior to cornucopian worldviews. It, it exists um, in the 16th century um, and, and probably long before. We, uh, uh, the the uh, oldest version of finitarianism that we identify we call neo-Aristotelian scarcity. Um, so you think of the great chain of being, of sumptuary laws, of uh, uh, the body politic. Um, uh, the finitarianism um, is not um, dead um, by the end of the 17th century. Um, uh, it's in slow and gradual decline, you might say, but um, it also spawns uh, uh, new forms of um, validation. Uh, for example, uh, the romantic scarcity, um, you might think of as a revival of this idea of a finite world and finite desires, um, but along a different axis, not religion, not traditional religion, but um, art and uh, moral philosophy. Um, and the, the final version of scarcity in the book, um, uh, the, the condition we are now entering into, which we call planetary scarcity, is, is, a, is another variation on finitarian desires and the finitarian nature. Fantastic. Well, can I ask you then, uh, if you could um, build on what uh, Frederick just said about neo-Aristotelian scarcity or notions of scarcity sort of in early modern Europe in the 16th century um, 
how is humanity's relationship to the natural world uh, conceived? Sure. Um, so um, what we take to be the kind of 16th century basic understanding of, of scarcity is really something that's been with humanity for quite some time, harking back or even to antiquity. Uh, and it's, as we, we say in the name, the Aristotelian, uh, is based on the notion, uh, you know, Christianized notion of uh, land and nature being given to humanity as a gift from God. But because of original sin, humanity had to earn their living uh, by the sweat of their brow uh, and constantly, you know, tussle uh, with, with nature and try to generate enough material wealth to make it through the year, the season, the seven-year cycle, the generation, et cetera, et cetera. There's no sense of, of technological improvement, really. Um, there's no sense of linear time that you're uh, building for the future. It's a, it's a circular conception of time and uh, and and nature. Um, and, and as Frederick already hinted at, um, in a world in which nature cannot grow, there needs to be a, an understanding of society as a very highly circumscribed entity, very ordered, hierarchical. And uh, people at the time used the idea of the great chain of being and, and a body, body politic in which each um, class in society had certain responsibilities um, and were likened to, um, you know, to, to, to specific body parts. So the king was the head, uh, the, the clergy and the aristocracy, the internal organs, the arms were represented, uh, representing the, the artisans, the legs, the peasants, and the uh, farmers. The circulatory system uh, represented the, the, the merchants. Everyone had a role to play. If people played it properly, then the body politic would be healthy. It would be functional. There was a sense of geometric equality based uh, built into this model. There's a lot of ideas of paternalism between classes and also mutual aid uh, within classes. So uh, here we have an idea of a harmonious relationship between a limited nature and a limited society. Uh, and this is uh, a, a, a worldview that, that we argue um, existed for, for quite some time. In the 16th century, um, there's also a sense that this worldview was, was, was at odds or in conflict or in tension with what was increasingly happening in society. And, you know, the big story, of course, is the growth of commerce and the consequent enrichment of a certain class of people, the merchants. And of course, going back to Aristotle, people were always, um, you know, uh, uh, anxious about the merchants, because as Aristotle said, they have a kind of a, a an, an infinite desire for more and more. Um, and in the 16th century, for the first time, commerce is really able to gain traction uh, and really become a transformative force. So at this point, um, someone like Thomas More uh, correctly diagnoses that there is a um, dissonance between the prevailing worldview and actual society. So he was pointing to commerce, the enclosures, leading to the eviction of people from the land as disrupting the idea of the body politic. 
right? And he suggested that that ushered in a new era of scarcity, something we call enclosure scarcity, right? And this was um, a, a moment, and of course that continues for a long time, in which everyone wanted more all the time. So there's a scarcity condition. The rich wanted more because they could accumulate endlessly, and the poor always wanted more because they had nothing at all. So there you see one kind of shift in the notion of scarcity that is brought on by a recognition that the world had changed and that people had broken out of the traditional worldview. Right. So that that's just kind of the first transition in the book covering uh, chapters one and and um, well, we're we're dealing with this in chapter one, both of mm. these. Um, if it's possible to briefly summarize the utopian scarcity um, worldview as well, and then moving on to um, the big shift <laughs> the following century. Frederick, I wondered whether you might do that. Um, can we briefly summarize utopian scarcity as a, as a, a worldview that develops in the 16th century, and then um, what happens at the beginning of cornucopian thinking? And I want to bring in the scientific revolution here and the scientific ethos of the scientific revolution. Um, but yeah. Go ahead, please. Well, utopian scarcity uh, has a fairly straightforward solution to the problem of enclosure and you know, what we would call agrarian capitalism. It's simply to do away with commerce, to do away with with the drive towards enclosure. Um, uh, uh, and one sees, um, you know, different variations on this theme, and say more and someone like Winston Lee a century later. Um, but it's essentially the same recipe. Um, so uh, we would identify that as a finitarian solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but what happens in uh, in the early 17th century um, is that we get a much more ambitious intellectual defense of um, uh, a, a world beyond neo-Aristotelian conceptions of nature and the economy, uh, and we call this—this uh, th this, this might be a little bit confusing, but I'll, I'll, I'll try <laughs> to be as clear as I can. We call this breakthrough, this new form of scarcity. We call that cornucopian scarcity, right? So, uh, so we we have we use cornucopian then in, in two ways in the book uh, as an umbrella category for all the forms of expansive. Uh, worldviews, all the dynamic notions of economy and desire and nature, but also as specifically the word for uh, uh, this uh, this breakthrough in in the 17th century. Um, and uh, uh, key thinkers, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, include um, the Hartlib circle, uh, but of course also natural philosophers before them, um, like Francis Bacon. Um, in, in, Bacon's, um, in Bacon's New Atlantis and in his great inspiration, um, we encounter a, um, a notion of humanity that's fundamentally radical in our opinion, um, uh, where the uh, divine demiurgic uh, quality of uh, human ingenuity is highlighted. That is to say, uh, man it has been made in the image and likeness of God and is therefore capable of wielding godlike knowledge and godlike power. 
to master nature. Alchemy uh, and mechanical philosophy promise liberation from the shackles, the, tr- the limits of nature that neo-Aristotelian scarcity uh, had encapsulated. So it's, it's nothing less than a revolt against uh, against the human condition in some sense, um, and a kind of deification of human power and knowledge. Nature goes from um, enforcing very strict limits on what human society, how wealthy, how possible human society can be, to being a something that can be completely exploited and bent to the will of humankind. It's a yeah, complete reversal. Um, I'm interested in that chapter seemed to divide between the natural philosophy, I'll use the phrase scientific revolution, that's not necessarily the done thing anymore, but um, natural, 17th century natural philosophy, the first half, and then the second half moves over to more economic thinkers, you may disagree with that characterization of that chapter, but do you find in the scientists that sense of unlimited human wants? I understand you get the sense of nature being... Um, that it can be uh, bent to human will. Um, do you also get the re, the new depiction of human nature as being characterised by boundless wants? Is that are those two things being forged together, or well, the economists picking up on the natural philosophers and forcing that together, or, or are they um, are they sort of two separate uh, developments? Well, I, I think the interesting um, the, the, the part of the interesting story here is the Hartlib circle, uh, which. Uh, you can't really characterize as as being only natural philosophers or political economy. There's, there's a great deal of conversation and exchange of ideas amongst them. And again, it's not a very coherent network of uh, improvers and intelligencer. They're uh, corresponding with people throughout Europe, and uh, some people are coming and going. But Fundamental to their worldview was this idea, almost millenarian idea, that it was possible for humanity to create a kingdom of heaven on earth, and that God had given this cornucopia that was uh, that was hidden in nature, and that if humanity could just solve the source code of nature through scientific improvement, experimentation, and empirical science, uh, they could unlock that abundance, and uh, that abundance could solve a variety of economic, political, and social problems. Um, it, it's uh, the, the, the switch towards that kind of infinite desire, that second part of the scarcity relationship um, comes in the latter part of the 17th century. And the figures mm-hmm. like, like um, Nicholas Barben and Bernard Mandeville, Mandeville is of course, is a medical doctor, um, Barbin is also dabbling in, in science and all kinds of other activities. So um, uh, so there's a sense in which these two kind of prongs of the scarcity relationship emerges together in the same uh, context, in the same conversation. And of course, what Barbin and Mandeville are suggesting is kind of an early version of, of Gordon Gecko, uh, that, that greed is good. Um, that the desires shouldn't be curtailed, that we shouldn't demonize the the the, the seven deadly sins, but in least, instead recognize them and instrumentalize them and turn them into a kind of engine for improvement, the engine for infinite economic growth. So what you then have is a kind of a 
you know, double helix in which nature is infinitely expandable and desires in the economy uh, are also infinitely expanding. At any given moment, there's scarcity, but it's a very different way of conceiving of that scarcity when both nature and economy are simultaneously growing on an infinite level. Mm. I just, as a, a question on the side, I suppose, is this all the, also the moment um, where the scientist becomes the hero? One, one of the themes sort of um, kind of tackle uh, the end of the book is about uh, those people who are optimistic about the future because they believe in the power of human ingenuity in terms of scientific innovation to deal with the problems that we're facing, right? And I wondered whether there is a through line there. This is the beginning of the idea that the, the scientist will save the day. The natural philosopher will transform um, human existence in ways that make it, will make everyone very happy. Well, I mean, I mean, that's a really great okay. question. And, and you know, the it's, um, it, you know, there's a lot of the ideas that are coming out of the Hartlib circle and other improvements groups that was characterized as projecting, uh, and that they were cast as projectors, which were was, in some meanings of that word, uh, considered to be kind of castle building in the sky, pipe dreams, that this is, utopian in itself that it was a completely impossible to actually realize some of these improvements um jonathan swift in gulliver's travels uh makes fun of the royal society and in extension the Hartlib circle suggesting that they're involved in all of these crazy projects such as extracting sunbeams from cucumbers <laughs> reducing yeah. Food, reducing human excrement to the original food, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I wouldn't say that this is the emergence universally of the scientist as as the hero. There's a lot of because um, it's a it's a destabilizing new worldview, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people who are resisting it. Um, and certainly Barbin and Mandeville. Were, were were you know their works and their interventions were absolutely scandalous and there's a lot of pushback uh against this um this emerging uh, uh, point of view well just on the topic of scandal scandal provides us a useful way to move on to um to the high enlightenment if you like david hume and adam smith in your next chapter um who seem to take the Mandevillian position and then get rid of some of its more extreme edges, its more provocative rather than well-substantiated positions, and then um, offer... Well, the way I read that chapter, it sounded like this was quite an attractive worldview for you two. I don't know if I'm allowed to <laughs> project onto you, but it seemed that, um, that there was... The, it seemed like a, a sensible position compared to what came before. Um, maybe, Frederick, you could um, tell us a bit about... Um, what happens with David Hume and Adam Smith when it comes to their conception of scarcity, please? Yeah, it's, it's shrewd of you to notice that uh, our sympathies are <laughs> with these two to, to a considerable degree. We are both, uh, um, you know, um, uh, Hume and Smith uh, scholars to some degree. Um, I'll I'll give a, a sort of general characteristic and then and then um Carl can jump in and fill fill in the details. Um, so the way we look at these two gentlemen is um uh, to see them as um uh not anti-cornucopians. 
um, um, but as uh, responding to the wild uh, ambition of alchemy um, and um, you know, 17th century natural philosophy with a more, shall we say, a more mature uh, and holistic approach to the human condition, one that is grounded not just in in the natural philosophy of its time, of Newtonianism. I mean, both Smith and, and Hume were well acquainted with the sciences, uh, but they were also, of course, moral philosophers, which so often gets erased in history of economics, um, right, that tends towards the Chicago school of um things um hmm. so so in our in our view human smith represents um a a kind of maturation of cornucopianism that is uh still fundamentally uh progressive and optimistic about the tendency of of um of the economy um but isn't in such a hurry um and isn't so naive about um, the prospect of human power. That's more measured, uh, mm. more sober. I, I got the sense that human Smith don't believe in infinite growth. There, there was a very real sense in the wealth of nations that um, the agricultural potential of a country is limited, is finite, and you can't go beyond that. So they, they do. Is that a correct reading? And that um, yeah, you move away from the unlimited growth of the. The 17th century predecessors into a far more realistic understanding of where a country could end up. So, um, just building on 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 a few things that that Frederick mentioned, um, there there is a a real attraction uh, to the cornucopian worldview, uh, but also a revulsion. Uh, this idea that people can just unleash their selfishness and that that's going to generate a, a, a favorable society. Um, a lot of people push back on that idea of Mandeville. And what Hume suggested is that, in fact, there isn't a fundamental contradiction between wealth and virtue, but that you can actually pursue both at the same time. And he suggested that the quotidian activities of the middle classes in capitalism, so Industry, hard systematic work, uh, so industry, commerce, and the refinement of the arts, both the liberal and the technical arts, which he argued is essential and constitutive of the middle classes, the emerging middle classes, that that not only generates an abundance of material wealth, but it also works on the minds of people and that they develop better habits and customs and that that enables them to be both better um, problem solvers in the realm of the economy, but also in the realm of politics and in the realm of morality. And that so that as capitalism grows, um, there will be an improvement, almost automatic improvement in people's moral virtues. And also as, become, as people become more refined, they're going to shift away from a, 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 a continuous desire for more and more consumption and material goods, to taking greater delight in things like conversation, philosophy, uh, poetry, theater, so that it becomes a slightly less acquisitive society uh, in, in the future. Um, now, um, they both Hume and Smith believe that nature 
uh, was could accommodate economic growth. But I think, as you pr correctly uh, pointed out, there is an, a, a sense that this is an indefinite uh, venture, but not necessarily infinite. Right. So they're not very clear on the kind of time scale that they're speaking within. And many times they they just kind of throw out predictions about the future, but it's frequently unclear whether that is a hundred years or, or, or 500 years into the future. It, and yeah. Sorry, it doesn't make as much sense in the pre-industrial age to think that you could run out of resources in the following century. You can see the potential of uh, industry to, you know, consume um, resources at an, you know, immense rates. But if you're Hume writing in the 1740s, early 1750s, that's not that's not what you see around you. I, 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 yeah, does that land as a point? You think or? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, and of course, the other dimension to think about here is is um, um, the promise of technology. Um, uh, I would argue that uh, Smith Smith and Hume are certainly aware of of the innovation um, that's happening in British society and in French society, but um, they don't they haven't formed a concept of an industrial revolution that has yet to come. Uh, so again, um, and with their, with, with Smith's uh, very strong, um, um, very strong attachment to gradual, insensible improvement, uh, one gets the sense that Smith, Smith doesn't want revolution. He wants progress that is, Sturdy and solid. That's built on a on a firm foundation, <laughs> not yeah. alchemy. Um, um, that said, he does offer hints that he considers some societies to be closer to the limit than others. And the obvious pairing here is uh, the Dutch Republic on the one hand, where he says uh, uh, the Dutch have reached the full complement of natural riches that they can achieve within their own society, meaning uh, they're fully exploiting, exploiting all the resources they have. Uh, on the other hand, North America, the, the, and meaning the, the European settlements in North America, um, in Smith's opinion, are only in their infancy. Um, and so you have to think about progress and, and improvement with Smith in, in that spatial sense of, of on the one hand, Full societies or a full world that are have reached the kind of maturation that that uh, that will continue to prosper, but at a you know modest rate of growth, and then empty places, uh, of course, completely disregarding uh, native people in the story, um, but empty places, uh, settler colonies where where there's plenty of room to grow, um, and as you know, uh, uh, Smith puckishly suggests that uh, soon or relatively soon um, the capital of the British Empire might have to move from from the British Isles to to North America. <laughs> uh, is there anything that we need to talk about in terms of like, the Enlightenment uh, understanding of scarcity before we jump into the Romantics and then the Malthusians? I think, showing my biases here a little bit, we might skirt quickly over the Romantics and get into the Malthusians. Um, but yeah, can we, um, anything we've missed and then tell us about the romantics? 
Uh, romantic scarcity, as, a, as I said earlier, um, we identify as under the umbrella of finitarian forms of scarcity. Romantic scarcity, um, we have a somewhat, perhaps a slightly more capacious sense of its, uh, uh, of its beginnings and its end than other intellectual historians might. We thought with Rousseau, um, and then move to Wordsworth um, and Claire and Ruskin. Um, and um, in, in the final chapter of the book, we suggest that Romanticism is still with us uh, in, 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 in the 20th century and 21st centuries. So it's a pretty expansive uh, idea that's been, uh, that's been um, never been dominant, um, always mm -hmm. in opposition. Uh, always for the dropouts and and the poets. Uh, um, in in the form Wordsworth, Dorothy and William Wordsworth give it, um, romantic scarcity is a retreat to um, to uh, the Lake District, um, to marginal soil, to um, a. a um, peasant society or at least the remnants of a peasant society um it is a drive to simplification of desire it's a retreat from mandeville city um it's centered on nature not as a resource but as an object of beauty and moral value hmm. i'm interested in the sort of the sort of mind with Rousseau's sort of uh critique or criticisms of commercial society and everything i was what's the quote from you i have a, i don't think oh, oh no i do have it here um the Rousseau, in your words uh believed that everything in society and nature had become subjugated to the quest for trivial luxuries the Rousseau thinks that everything's gone wrong but he thinks that happened a long time ago and you can't go back to the to the earlier version of um human life where you are in tune with nature like that that's gone um I, was, I found it interesting with the, you mentioned Marshall Salins um, in the final chapter, I think, um, the similar kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, a reiteration of that kind of Rousseauian position. But it does sound very much like that that's off the table because it's not possible to go back to um, that kind of, um, that kind of uh, uh, engagement with nature or way of living in nature. Uh, that's why you know I found the romantics to be um, the least um, persuasive of the various worldviews presented here. Apart from Charles Fourier, we'll come back to him <laughs> later. Um, mm -hmm. But as as a sort of um, yeah, as you just said, like the preserve of uh, misfits and outsiders, and it's it's not a I don't know whether you would agree with this. It's not like a a sensible worldview that you might get lots of people to go along with. It doesn't sound like it would be appealing to a large number of people. Is that unfair, do you think? Um, well, um, we we try as much as possible not to take sides <laughs> in our, in oh, our history. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, you're right that we're dealing with um, a subconsciously minority position that, that wants to diverge from, from the herd. Now, I would say, I would add to that, though, that if... Um, history lands us in a situation where urban society begins to collapse, mm -hmm. um, where um, the promise, Mandeville's promise turns out to be wrong, 
then suddenly the the romantic um position might look a lot more realistic yeah right and and of course uh, that's sort of that's sort of the perennial promise of romanticism and and that's probably why it endures into the present another enduring worldview is the malthusian one uh could you tell us a little bit about again in very very broad brush strokes i apologize um malthus's contribution uh to this ongoing uh conversation also the idea that, idea that malthus is a loser he, he loses the argument but he's also tremendously influential um including the, the echelons of power in the british empire so yes what, what is the malthusian position um why might he be categorized as a a loser in the argument, and yet also extremely influential. Mm. Uh, Malthus gives us another variation on finitarianism, um, right? very different from the from the utopian and romantic conceptions of finitarianism. Um, uh, bluntly put, Malthus um, Malthus warns us that uh, uh, humanity is trapped between its sexual urges and the finite supply of land. Um, the only path forward is to curb population, either through the positive, the dreaded positive check of famine, war, and disease, or uh, the preventive check, meaning uh, middle-class respectability, um, actually uh, earning enough to feed all your offspring. And so this is a very cruel worldview uh, in its middle class uptake in the 1830s and 40s. Um, uh, it's it certainly, I, I, I think we agree with Boyd Hilton that it has great influence on early 19th century British politics and society, sometimes with catastrophic consequences, as with Ireland and India uh, and the famine policy in those places. Um, uh, but um, Malthusian scarcity is soundly repudiated by the marginalist, by the neoclassical form of scarcity um, that emerges by the end of the 19th century. So that's why uh, that's why we cast uh, Malthus as a as a loser, as you put it. Mm -hmm. um, but as with romantic scarcity, <laughs> Malthusian scarcity has has enormous intellectual longevity, right? It's a simplistic way of understanding the world um, and therefore uh, a very fond uh, resort, um, uh, resource for, um, for environmentalists and mm. racists and conservatives of, of various stripes. Um, uh, you know, it's not sufficiently acknowledged uh, just how mired environmental uh, environmental politics is in a Malthusian um, or neo-Malthusian worldview. Um, it's not a coincidence that the word environment in its modern sense of a sort of fragile biosphere um, is, is, is uh, coined by neo-Malthusian thinkers uh, around 1950. I thought it was interesting we move on uh, to the socialist and neoclassical understandings of scarcity. Mm -hmm. the, the socialist understanding of scarcity is one utterly bound up with the achievements of the Industrial Revolution. And therefore, if we are now sceptical about 
the benefits of um you know uncontrolled consumption the socialist 19th century socialism ceases to be as attractive a um, as, you know, something to go back to a sort of a model, a way of thinking about scarcity. I might want to come back to that in a second. But can we summarise, please, the uh, socialist position first? It sounds like um, internet growth is possible and would be wonderful, but the capitalists are awful and they're getting all of us to think the material consumption is the be-all and end-all of existence. Is that a very crude but fair summary? <laughs> Sure. So in our view, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting hybrid between finitarianism and cornucopianism, because on the one hand, it's predicated on a Promethean worldview, the, the, the real possibilities for humans to build upon the wonders that capitalism has shown humanity, that humanity possesses this incredible tools to transform nature into um, to material wealth. So that part uh, is something that most of the socialists believed uh, was the kind of, um, you know, what was the vehicle whereby you could move towards a more humane society. But of course, as you're pointing out, um, the process of creating all this wealth is a very repressive process and it's a very um, class-based process. In fact, Marx argued that what the capitalists wanted in their infinite quest for more and more profit wasn't necessarily to consume more. In fact, he thought that capitalists who consumed a lot were bad capitalists. The point was to reinvest the surplus value and to employ more and more people. And the purpose of that employment uh, was to control the working classes, right? This was the instrument whereby a very small minority of the population could control the vast majority. So work became a social control mechanism, a way to organize the multitude. So um, whether it's Fourier or, or Marx, um, they both argued that in order to move towards a socialist society, you have to radically reorganize the mode of production so that the intent behind the production becomes to improve the standards of living for the for the vast majority and not uh, for production to be a continuous process of repression and alienation. But there is no concern about the finitude of natural resources. That's not a key theme of Marxian economic thought. Well, you know, this is a controversial issue. There are a lot of people who are doing an excellent job finding nuggets in Marx's abundant writings that seem to suggest that he can be cast as a kind of environmentalist and that he was cognizant of this. You know, in the book, and I think, uh, you know, both Frederick and I would agree that, um, you know, a concern for the environment and nature in general, it, it's not really at the center of Marx's project, right? His is a critique of capitalism uh, in which uh, he was trying to uh, describe and evaluate and uh, condemn the social conditions of production, not so much the natural conditions. Mm. But have the unintended consequence of, uh, if you're trying to liberate human nature from the constraints that capitalism puts you under, 
that um, you would be redirected in a way not entirely unlike human Smith, perhaps, that you would be directed towards a more capacious understanding of human nature, which, um, you know, those are a lot of aspects that were repressed um, are able to now flourish. which I suppose can yeah that which yeah unintended consequence of that is that you are directed away from material consumption. Yeah. Life isn't just about um, you know, consuming; it's about higher and better things. <laughs> then enter the neoclassical econo- economists. You go into some detail about the immense explanatory potential and success that the neoclassical approach has had for achieving the goals that it set out to achieve. Right, well, it's had consequences that have been. Very, are very problematic or very difficult to now deal with. But as a worldview, it has been very successful. Uh, could we summarise uh, what you understand the neoclassical position to be and then why it's been so successful? Sure. So so the emergence of, of neoclassical economics is, is, is absolutely fascinating. And uh, there are many different reasons why it becomes popularised in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, even though the ideas are already there in embryonic form in the 1850s. Um, the, the, the two big developments in the 19th century as we see it uh, is on the one hand, uh, the final arrival of a really cornucopian world. Right? In the 19th century, you start seeing the effects of all this scientific and um, technological improvement all of a sudden there is a budding abundance of material goods uh, and economic growth is truly taking off by the second half of of the 19th century, not just in England, uh, but more broadly. You're also seeing uh, a strong working class movement with unions and socialists and anarchists and communists emerging. They were using the ideas of classical economics, in particular the labor theory of value, and the idea that uh, they uh, that they focused on was this idea that all value comes from labor. Why is it then, if all labor is produced by, excuse me, all value is produced by labor, why are the workers getting so little? Uh, and that is something that uh, made the labor theory of value really politically explosive. So there's a need amongst liberals and those who were protective of this emerging industrial capitalism, there's a need to find a different worldview that shaped the inquiry in a way that was more amenable to their purposes. So neoclassical economics is interesting in that it reduces uh, and um, abstracts away from politics almost entirely. It also doesn't deal with broad structural change, but instead focuses on the change on the margin. So the infinitesimal small changes, partly this was to be able to use calculus and optimization techniques, but it was also a way to kind of move away from the contentious social reality that existed outside. So people like um, Menger, Walra, and Jevons developed what some people would argue is a, is a beautiful deductive framework that are based on very simple axioms, but that can explain a lot. And it was very useful in explaining the world 
that people sought to develop at the time. So it casts firms as profit maximizers, individuals as utility maximizers. Everyone is optimizing their interest, but doing so in a market framework. And the outcome of that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the outcome of, of that is an optimal allocation of goods. And that's a very powerful endorsement of capitalism and the market mechanism. And that, you know, didn't become dominant, that worldview didn't become dominant right away, but it was very quickly growing in influence, first in England and then in the rest of the world. And one of the sort of um, interesting themes that emerges from those final chapters is, and we talked about it sort of at the beginning as well, uh, the lack of interest in on environmental concerns, the lack of interest in the idea that nature might be finite. Why was that the case? Why would it be um, that it wasn't addressed as an issue? Both both uh, socialist scarcity and neoclassical scarcity are, uh, in some sense, uh, revolting against Malthusian strictures. Um, that that's the simplest way of answering your question. Um, that they. Uh, for different reasons, um, they try to repudiate uh, the Malthusian idea of um, population in a finite world. Um, um, but equally important here is is that uh, Marx and Engels and the marginalists are living through, as Karl noted, uh, the the kind of uh, the acceleration, um, the acceleration of industrialization, um, what what we sometimes call the second industrial revolution, um, with with truly breathtaking results um, that seem to promise transcendence from the shackles of agrarian society. Um, um, now, Marx has a fair bit to say about land rents and so on, um, but he's hardly an agrarian thinker. Um, although there is, of course, the, the the final marks of the Russian Russian rural community stage, um, where the marginalist um, Jevons is famous for his early work on coal exhaustion, um, and and there is there is a certain grappling with material resources, even with with later marginalists, um, but more and more um, science appears to be. Um, promising transcendence from, from agriculture. Agriculture is uh, perhaps still uh, uh, the basis, but um, it's no longer um, imposing limits on, on growth in, in any traditional sense. Going on in the background of the second industrial revolution is the move from the Holocene to the Anthropocene. I wonder if you could summarize that, that development um, it, it become that that then becomes a very important thing in the final chapter. We'll come back to it, but just just for our listeners, uh, what what happens at that point? Very very simply, um, uh, we uh, humanity, the species, the planet, leaves behind the relatively stable climate condition of the Holocene um, uh, in in uh, in the twentieth century. Um, 
and we see uh, a market rise in global mean temperature. Uh, but that process is already underway. If you're looking at atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations, mm -hmm. that process is already happening at the end of the 19th century. So this, this is a really central insight of the book that at, at the very moment that socialists and marginalists are promising unbounded growth, we are in fact beginning to jeopardize the stability of the earth system. I like that. I like that's such a key bit, that's such a key message of the book. I wonder if we could say anything, anything more about that. Things begin to change. There's another sort of revolution in uh, worldviews with the emergence of what you describe as planetary scarcity. Uh, I wondered whether you could summarize some of the key insights uh, of that worldview, when it happens, why it happens, and yeah, it's key insights, please. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, planetary scarcity, um, we define as the condition um, of scarcity that sees humanity, uh, a minority of the humanity, of, of humanity, uh, over-consuming resources uh, to such an extent that we're putting um, a fundamental strain on the stability of the Earth system by filling up its sinks. And here we have primarily in mind uh, the carbon sinks of the world. Um, but we also see uh, a twin problem, a twin emergency in the pressure on biodiversity and the looming threat of a sixth mass extinction. Uh, so, so again, this is a finitarian form of scarcity, but it's distinct from Malthusian scarcity in as much as it's not a, a problem of generalized population pressure on the finite supply of land. It's a problem of overconsumption of a minority of the of the world's population putting pressure on the Earth system sinks, um, and this uh, this condition becomes apparent. Um, more or less at the same time as uh, the post-war West um, uh, and, uh, experiences this enormous uh, economic boom uh, that John McNeil calls the Great Acceleration. So the Great Acceleration for McNeil is, uh, is at the same time an economic and an environmental uh, phenomenon. On the one hand, a massive growth spurt, um, a kind of giddy acceleration um, and, and a promise of cornucopian growth um, for Western democracies that then spreads elsewhere in the world after 1980. Um, uh, but uh, it's it's accompanied from the beginning by um, a series of flashing red lights for environmental indicators, um, uh, carbon dioxide um, is among them, the, the, the most pressing one, um, the, the um, acceleration of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. Um, climate scientists and ecologists uh, begin to uh, become aware of the scale of the problem virtually at the beginning of the Great Acceleration in the 1950s. Mm. Charles Keeling is measuring uh, carbon dioxide emissions at Mauna Loa from the late 50s on. Uh, Rachel Carson warns about um, not just not just uh, toxic pollution locally, um, but also the overfilling of the ocean with waste um, uh, in her uh, trilogy um, about the sea. 
um, that is published in the early in the late fifties. Um, so so we have um, more or less uh, um, a simultaneous development of economic cornucopianism and environmental sanitarianism um, happening from the 50s on. Um, by, uh, by 2000, um, uh, the, the anxiety about environmental pressure um, uh, is expressed in uh, this new concept of the Anthropocene, Anthropocene this, this idea that we've left behind a relatively stable uh, uh, state of the Earth system, and are about to enter into a wildly oscillating, extreme new um, version of the planet. Um, planetary boundaries, um, um, as proposed by the Stockholm Resilience Center, is one way to think about this this um, uh, this world of potential tipping points. Um, and that's been very influential for us in, in that it suggests um, a uh, a new way forward in economic thinking. Um, in you know recently we've had um, the beginnings of a reorientation of economic uh, economic science towards the Earth system science of the Anthropocene. Um, people like Karen Rayworth, uh, her idea of donut economics. Um, shows the the potential for a kind of for a new for a synthesis of sorts. Um, so planetary scarcity is on the one hand it's a material condition that's increasingly alarming, um, but intellectually um, it's it's yet to be seen uh, how we articulate a full response to the emergency we're in. Um, it's still underway, uh, and our book is meant as an intervention in. In uh, this process, um, well, uh, I, but we are. Yeah, could yeah. I interrupt then? Because then that, that neatly ties us into our sort of some concluding comments then. Um, the book is a contribution to how we can think about extracting ourselves from this situation. Um, just a quote from your introduction: "The primary aim of this book is therefore to expand our intellectual toolbox so that we can transcend the current hegemony of neoclassical economics." Um, Expanding our intellectual toolbox. How does that work? How does uh, uh, the study of past notions of scarcity help us um, think about these very, very pressing issues uh, in new and helpful ways? Well, that, that, that's a great question. So the, the, <clears throat> the, the way that we think about the modern notion of economics is, is very much the the version that is being taught in the classroom, right? Uh, the fundamental, the econ 101, the textbook version of economics. Now, to be fair to economists, there's been quite a bit of a development. Frederick just mentioned Raworth, there are others, there's Partha Dasgupta at Cambridge who are thinking outside of the general equilibrium idea um, and are looking for ways to actually think as economists in ways that might provide solutions to, to the kind of problems that we're dealing with. Um, and there are numerous empirical economists who are also very interested in these questions and who aren't wedded to this idea uh, intrinsic to the, 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 the classroom version of economics that 
economists can somehow figure out what the optimal level of production is and that that optimal level of production rarely takes nature and climate and climate systems into account. So I think there is already uh, some efforts within economics departments um, to move beyond this fundamental assumption. However, it's still quite limited. Uh, so we are encouraging young economists, young social scientists um, uh, to not necessarily go back into history because the point of our book is that these ideas never quite go away. Uh, they're nestled in the social fabric. They're, they're around us. Um, so you don't necessarily have to rediscover Neo-Aristotelian uh, scarcity or romantic scarcity or enlightened scarcity. Uh, it's around. It's, it's, it's in the air or it's in the cloud, as they say. Um, and we're encouraging people to bring those ideas into their efforts at theorizing the world and constructing and, and, and again, some ways continuing to search for other worldviews that might provide us with a, an, an easier way to behave uh, in the world in manners that are sustainable. Mm. And sort of the benefit on other, um, one of the things that a genealogy of a concept can achieve uh, I, I, Frederick, you already sort of mentioned this, I think, at the beginning of the interview already, but quoting you from uh, the conclusion of the book, I think, a genealogy helps us um, prevent the mistake of um, taking a current ideological position for a universal and timeless truth, which is you know, the neoclassic, neoclassical understanding of the scarcity and growth and the relationship between uh, humanity and the world as being. That is fixed, that is definitely the way things are, um, and that's what we have to work with. So you talk about the, the sort of um, the free market uh, solutions pose um, uh, uh, suggested that how the free market will help solve the climate crisis through uh, incentivizing scientific innovation, which you don't dismiss as a thing, but it's it's not that that's going to be the be all and end all, uh, but that if you're aware that that when that of when that idea came into being and how it is utterly wrapped up with the problem that you're now trying to solve. You you view that neoclassical worldview with a great degree of scepticism, um, and that is a very sort of insightful thing that a, a history of concepts uh, can provide. Your answer there, Carl, was quite um, um, not about defensive, but you weren't sort of celebrating the the role that the intellectual historian could uh, can play in these in these things. We're not we're not forcing people to pay pay attention to history but it does have a really destabilizing effect again i think that's using one of your words from earlier but a destabilizing effect on what you think the the possible um futures are possible um, policies that we could be be adopting so yeah i wondered whether you might there's a more positive account of history you might want to put forward there as well yeah we uh, uh we might sound as if we're in the business of replacing neoclassical scarcity with a new unitary form of uh, um, planetary scarcity. Um, that's not quite how we see things. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, we are uh, certainly faced with a planet that seems to be siding with the planetarians, a planet that's showing the strain of uh, economic growth. Um, but um, we're with the Pesh Chakrabarti in imagining the human response to this condition not as uh, not as a happy harmonious one but rather 
fractured along ideological geopolitical lines. We have a closing window to um, to the, embark on a project of repair, of ecological repair, of decarbonization, of infrastructural change. By the way, these are all massive, massive labor-intensive, capital-intensive projects. Um, so, so there's plenty of space for growth here of a certain kind that's ecologically sensible. Um, at the same time, biodiversity beckons as a second problem after climate change that's much trickier to deal with because it, it, it looks as if uh, we're going to have to figure out how to give uh, non-human species uh, enough space to thrive. So how does one pull off uh, 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 a, a, uh, a move like that, um, you know, two steps forward and one step back, if you, if you like, um, all within conditions where we are, um, prob will probably remain for the foreseeable future divided um, into different geopolitical blocks, different mm -hmm. religions, different ideologies. Um, so that's another justification mm -hmm. for the approach of the book. Uh, the approach of the book is to excavate um, past forms of scarcity, um, not in in uh, trying to pick a single winner, but rather to show uh, an array of intellectual possibilities on which one might build um, a, a sensible response to the planetary emergency we're in. Hmm. Fantastic. Adam Carl, thank you very much indeed. Uh, yes, this is out with uh, Harvard University Plus Scarcity and History from the Origins of Capitalism to the Climate Crisis. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you.